So just for this is this talking a little bit about about what Jesus said and what the Buddha said and the correspondence between the two. Um, and you know, I was just starting to say that here in 2023, obviously, this is a pretty contentious time in global history. I got two wars going on. And our own government is just in the strangest state with an enormous amount of animosity. And, and a lot of it's tinged with religious stuff and there's anti-Semitism happening right now, which is really sad. So it seems like a good time to like look at where we meet, you know, where we meet and what we can learn from that. Cause we're doing, we're choosing the Buddhist practice. And let me ask you, how many here also in some sense are Christians or active Christians or anybody here like that? No? Yep. Anybody out there? Okay. Um, but it seems like, and it was really fun working on this, because when you look at what the what Jesus said and what the Buddha said and how they lived, kind of strip away all the other stuff, they're amazingly similar. It's just the, the, the idea that it's really different starts to seem really not different, My, more so than I realized. I mean, it was really cool working on this. Um and I think that's something that can really, really help us. And uh, some attributes I'm going to touch on, I'll just give a little list here. They're both, both these traditions are centered around a person, the Buddha and Jesus, who had this, who, who in some sense radiantly exemplified or embodied a kind of awakening that has inspired people, as we know, for thousands of years. And both teachers focused on love and compassion, Above all else, it was just core to what they taught. And both of them also focused on ethical living and ethical choices and how important that is to walk the path. And both of them were pretty radically non-materialist, you know, in terms of what they said about attaching to stuff and accumulating stuff and being rich and how you work that with being generous. And then both of them, they really embodied something about the transcendent or the sacred, and in a sense, bade us come forward to do that also. So there's a lot of, a lot of similarities. Jack Kornfield is a, a very nice book I found called Jesus and Buddha, the Parallel Sayings. And I will say some of this comes from that. And he says in the introduction, when we listen deeply to their words, we find out, we find that in many ways they speak with one heart. I thought that was really, that's really lovely. So I'm going to share, you know, some of my best unlimited understanding of these with some quotes, kind of quite, quite a bunch of quotes here, and there'll be time for whatever kind of discussion we want to have. And just in terms of where I'm coming from, I was never Christian, so I don't have, in some ways that's good, because I know a lot of people who are Christian, then there's baggage, and then they got to unchristian themselves, because for some people it was hard. You know, there was oppressive stuff and stuff like that. Other people not. I know other people that had a great Christian but I wasn't. Didn't grow up a Christian. My mother was a lapsed Catholic, and my father was a very fierce atheist. He just blamed all kinds of problems on religion, uh, you know, in terms of tribunals and all kinds of things over history. So that's where I came from. But I've kind of always been interested in it. I've been interested in the path, and that was all that was there when I was growing up until I figured out there was something else. Uh and I've been interested in sort of contemplative aspects of Christianity all along. And I should also say that I did read the Bible cover to cover in 2006. So whatever tiny creds I have, it was very, it's very wonderful. <laughs> uh, 
So anyway, and you know, when we think of Jesus and the Buddha, I mean, it sort of seems like they're from completely different worlds, right? You know, but not so much, actually. I mean, the Buddha lived 500 years before Jesus. So in the sort of historical time, that's not all that much. And they were only 3,000 miles apart, roughly, you know, where Bogaya is in the center of there and Jerusalem area. And that's, you know, here to Washington, D.C. So, you know, yeah, distance, but not horrendously so. And at that time, as a lot of you know, there was a ton of traffic going back from the Silk Route that went basically from the Middle East across kind of north of India to China. But there was also stuff going down into India. So there was a lot of travel going on. So you sort of, I sort of have a feeling of it being way more integrated, you know, than we might think. And then there's, when, 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 when scholars and teachers note similarities in the teachings, they say, oh, where'd that come from? And there's three major schools of thought. One is, it's just how things are, and great awakened beings see the same stuff. So it didn't come from anywhere. They just recognized what was true. There's another school of thought that says, since um, Jesus was 500 years after the Buddha, some of what the Buddha taught had kind of infiltrated and was available, and that had some referencing to what he taught. That happened in India. Some of some of the yogic teachings, Patanjali, is after the Buddha, and you can make a make a case that it influenced how that was. So it's an interesting thought. And actually, historically, uh, King Ashoka in the about 200 years after the life of the Buddha, emperor in India, sent emissaries to Alexandria, to Greece, to Egypt. Uh, and so there were actually Buddhist groups in Alexandria and in Egypt at the time of Jesus. So it wasn't 100 percent, you know, disconnected. And then the third, incredibly radical, but one that fascinates me a lot is that during the missing years, some of you know, from, from Jesus taught the last thing in the Bible is he's teaching the uh, when he's 12 teaching a bunch of rabbis in the temple and they're all amazed at how amazing he is and then nothing happens until he's 30. There's 18 years that are missing in the Bible and I mean and so there's a school of thought which is in multiple places that he didn't stick around he went to Asia and studied and came back and of course, that may seem like totally bizarre, but maybe not. There's a lot of people in Asia that say that's the case. There's historical sites that affirm that. Or, I mean, I'm not going to go too far down that aspect, but it's really interesting thought, and it doesn't seem impossible to me at all. And um, there's a great movie about this on uh, Amazon Prime, if you're ever interested. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there. What's the name of that movie, Steve? Excuse oh me. man, I think it's Jesus in India. Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll just, I, I literally did pick up one thing reading the Bible. It was James fifty four, and when when Jesus goes to teach in Nazareth, which was his hometown, this little town, and people were it literally says in the Bible, "Oh, who is that? Is that the son of Mary and Joseph? And how does he know how to do this?" And it's like, wait, wait, dude, this is this little town, and you don't know that that's the son of Mary and Joseph if you're in this little town and he's there? Like, if he was there being a carpenter for the last 18 years, you'd totally know who he was. So it suggests maybe he wasn't there. But that's enough on that. But just throwing that out just to uh, do what you want with. But let's consider some similarities. So the first is the, is the, the radiance of both of these people, 
I mean, that's so amazing, you know? And you see it, like the Dalai Lama has this kind of radiance just from the inside out. And Jesus and Buddha were both over the top. You know, they were extraordinary. And so that's what a similarity in the suttas. People are constantly commenting on the radiance of the Buddha. And, or even Ananda comments, you know, he puts, gets these amazing new golden robes and puts it on the Buddha and the Buddha's, his skin is more golden and glowing than the robes were. Or the really cool one is when he first goes to teach in Sarnath and the five ascetics with whom he'd been previously, they had dismissed him as a glutton because he started eating like the middle way. So he shows up and they say, oh, they, they recognize he was coming. So, oh, here comes that glutton Buddha. Let's just ignore him. But then when he came up, he was so radiant, they just couldn't do anything but stand up and recognize him. And, and Jesus was like that too. And there's a story in the Bible about the transfiguration of Jesus, where he went to pray with the three disciples on a mountain and his face was shining like the sun. And so I think it's really touching that there was this similarity. You know, they were awakened beings. That's how I see it. They were totally awakened beings, both of them. And that manifested, you know, and we can really appreciate that. We can really appreciate that. And I, I know the idea of, for a lot of Christians, that would be pretty hard to swallow, the idea of them both being awakened beings kind of similar. But nonetheless, do what you will. It's a, it's a way to look at it. I'll just throw it out that way. But I think it part of what's interesting is when you start to bring something else like that in, it's actually helpful for us because if we're on the path and we have some intention or aspiration to awaken, to know that there was somebody else coming from a whole different point of view that was in a very similar state, let's say, than the awakened Buddha with this manifest radiance that made it tactile almost. And in terms, I think one of the things that fascinates me a lot about Christian contemplative tradition, and I've done a lot of reading over the years and, you know, I've been really interested in the saints, like St. Francis. I went to, I went to Assisi a while back. Assisi is amazing. If you ever get a chance, Assisi is amazing. And there's this big cathedral and it felt so, in a, in a funny way, it felt so Buddhist and is, you know, in, in, especially in, in, in Vajrayana, there's a whole bunch of stuff about different kinds of like layers of three, the Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and the Manakaya realm. And in, in, in the way the cathedral in Assisi is set up, it's this, you know, great big cathedral and the top level is all, it's all very light. I mean, it's got big windows, very painted, very light. It's just flooded with light and it's kind of like, it's very kind of available. It's like, oh, uplifting. The lower level in the middle, you kind of go down and there's this lower level and that's where a lot of the tombs of the disciples and different people who were Franciscans later on are. And it's sort of more contemplative. I guess it's more contemplative. And then underneath that is this amazing inner sort of crypt where St. Francis's tomb is and his very closest disciples and you're, they enforce silence. I mean, there's literally a minder there. It's like silence sitting. That's all that happens. Just people are there praying and it's dead silent and it's just, woo, it's amazing. I mean, it was really cooking. It was beautiful, you know? And so, um, point being that, you know, I know when I'm 
I know something, <laughs> a little bit, about Buddhist tradition, but part of what's baked into Buddhist tradition is an aspiration to awaken, to to awaken like the Buddha did. That's what the Buddha's, that's what he taught the whole time, is trying to tell people how to do that. But that's going on in contemplative Catholic world also. And I think it's really interesting because it, 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 it focuses on the inner light. Once you really get into the world of contemplatives, the whole world of political Christianity and all the stuff that's going on, you know, it sort of fades away. And that what he was really talking about was how do people change? And in Catholic monastic world, over the centuries, there have been extraordinary people. St. Francis was extraordinary. Um, to, uh, Teresa of Alava was extraordinary. There's a whole bunch of female and male saints who were, as far as I'm concerned, awakened beings. And just as in Buddhist tradition, there's a whole bunch of people, Milarepa, or, um, oh yeah, Mogalana, so I was thinking of Milarepa or Mogalana and a whole bunch of other great beings, you know, Achancha, through the centuries that have awakened. So in terms of commonality, in terms of what people do with their lives, there truly is a parallel there. And we can really appreciate, and there have been a whole bunch of conferences, uh, get-togethers, you know, of monastics in both traditions and how they, how they resonate. <laughs> and oddly enough, there's a, and I just, I didn't really intend to say this, but there's a, uh, I think I may have mentioned Sister Leslie Lockwood. Have I mentioned Sister Leslie? One of my very, very first, yeah, I did, yeah, one of my very first Buddhist friends from, oh my God, from like 1988, she and I used to lead a sitting group, and this was back when Genla Rinpo was here. I mean, it's so far back, he was a Tibetan teacher who came here. Anyway, her karma kind of, who knows what, shifted or something, and she started moving towards Catholicism and then decided to become a monastic and then became a, a Carmelite nun, which is a completely sequestered Carmelite nun. You can't, they don't, they don't leave the monastery. You can just talk through a grill. All they do is pray. She did that for 20 years. And she and I had a regular correspondence because we were good friends and it, it, it always worked. It was great. I was a little worried she was going to like realize that, you know, I was a heathen or something, but that never happened. It was really like focused on the light and how we were seeing the light. It was so beautiful. And then she had a stroke about a year ago, out of the blue, you know, lived a healthy lifestyle. I mean, and so she's here now. She's in West Seattle. There's a there's a um, there's a uh, nursing home for for retired nuns in West Seattle, and there she is. And uh, just the same radiant Leslie. You know, I get together once in a while. She can't remember much because of her stroke, but under the heading of similarity, you know, her energy is just beautiful. She's got this big vision. She's able to somehow straddle the world. She never got hung up in what was Buddhist and what wasn't anyway. So in terms of these biographies or the life stories, they they recognized their potential partly because they were aware respectively of the Buddha or of Jesus, and that was what was sort of their North Star in their practice. You know, that's how they knew what it was, where they were trying to go. And that's really amazing. I mean, to me, that's really powerful. And we can, you know, almost broaden our sense. You know, maybe we're all doing Buddha Dharma and focus on the Buddha, but kind of, oh, yeah. It's not just the Buddha. You know, someone else was awakened and people turned towards that and became amazing beings because of that. So I just think that's that's really kind of warming, warm and supportive to look at it that way. And I think it helps us see 
I think it helps us see what we're doing. Like, for instance, when we take refuge, the three jewels, most, most of you know, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, take refuge in the three jewels. And some, it can get, how do I say? I mean, everything on the spiritual path can get mundane unless you keep it from being mundane. And if you really work it, then it changes you. But if you kind of go in cruise control, then maybe not. So taking refuge in the Buddha can kind of seem like this rote thing. But actually what we're doing is turning our hearts and minds towards this awakened being to help us see where we're going, just as people in this Christian tradition are turning their hearts and minds towards that awakened being to see where they're going. So I just feel we can learn a lot, you know, from these great awakened monastics and Catholic contemplative traditions. They're actually very similar to in, and there's a great book, if you're ever so moved, the uh, Asian Journals of Thomas Merton, because he did, when he went to Asia, He'd been wanting to do it for years, and finally his preceptor let him go. So he did his trip to Asia and met with the Dalai Lama. He met with the great Nyingma master, had these incredible conversations, and they were just like shining and glowing at each other, basically, right? It's kind of like when the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu would just kind of shine and glow at each other when Desmond Tutu was alive. So um, it's a wonderful book, and you can really feel how that was. I mean, he's taking a journal, then he died in a bathtub, So, but it, the, the book still came out. So it's a question for us, because I partly want to do this to help us think about how we're what we're doing on our journey, right? I mean, that's the whole point, to be doing all this, like what will help you and me. And when we take refuge in the Buddha, are we looking in the radiant possibility of who we are by referencing ourselves to the Buddha? If we bow to a statue like that, it's really about we can wake up. It's really about we have that potential maybe we haven't recognized yet, or maybe we've had glimmers, but we can. And so I think to me the thought that there's this whole other tradition in parallel, not that far away, two of the biggest religions in the world where they're focused in that way, and it helps us find the light, you know, keep keeping it lighting up. Because, as we know, the world kind of, it's gnarly, right? It's gnarly, and it's all this consumerism, and now there's two wars. I mean, it, people, I know a lot of people are, are freaked out, are despairing, are depressed, uh, have no sense of hope. But on an inner level, there's that possibility to awaken. And that's probably one of the greatest gifts, even in, you know, it's not like, it's not like an on-off switch. It's like a matter of degree. It's like incremental. So the degrees to which we do awaken are part of what we have to share with others, to help them navigate through the difficulties of the 21st century. So in terms of how Buddhist, Buddha, and Jesus, kind of what they expressed to people, and, and how they, how they, how they, how they live, basically. It's really interesting, beautiful, how deeply and uncompromisingly they focused on love and compassion. You know, that's like central. I mean, it's completely central. And both of them were, they were like so, ex, I don't know, extreme is the right word, but they kind of were like stretch way beyond our normal sense of what even seems reasonable. And that just shows how incredible they were. And that was part of what threatened, especially in Jesus' case, the, the political social hierarchy of the time. Some of that happened in Buddha's life, but not, not so much. But Jesus spoke of this in the Sermon of the Mount. And then the Buddha, 
in the Metasutta. And Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So love your enemy. You know, that's a big lift. I mean, you know, there may be political persons with whom we violently disagree about their actions. Can we still love them? Or there may be certain, you know, people arguably perpetrating wars right now. Can we love them even if we disagree with what they do? It's a big lift. The Buddha said in the Metta Sutta, let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. So isn't that amazing how uncompromising both of them are on that point? It's just, it's like, it's so beautiful. It's just like any place, anytime we fall into what seems like reasonable condemnation or disgust, doesn't work. Gotta love them. Disagree with their actions, that's a different matter. But in terms of their essential nature as beings, you gotta cultivate love toward the most difficult persons out there, and that's the only way we're going to get through it, seems to me, <laughs> as a as a people on a very tiny planet. So I think the fact that both of them were so extreme or so perfect or so, it, it almost brings more depth into our practice of loving kindness. You know, it's not just a Buddhist thing, it's how it is. And since they both taught in such similar ways, there is really a possibility for how we can work on that in our own practice and how much difference that can make in the world. You know, I got two wars being fought, Gaza and Ukraine, about 2,200 miles apart. I, for some reason, I'm, it makes sense to me to see how far apart things are. It's 2,200 miles. That's like from here to Chicago or something. There's two wars going on and, and, and political parties demonizing each other. So it's, this is really a time to cultivate that kind of love. And just even if it can happen in little bubbles here and there, that's super important. If it doesn't happen anywhere, we're sunk. You know, so the work that we all do, that anyone does in their heart to love unconditionally in the midst of division is really important. And you know, both those the Buddha and the and, and Jesus, I mean they lived in really fraught, difficult political times. I mean that Jesus grew up he, they were they were under the power of Rome. If he did say as a carpenter, which I kind of don't think he did, but he would have. Next thing to Nazareth was a big, basically, a big Russian housing. I mean, a big Roman housing development was right near Nazareth. And if he was doing stonework, he was probably over there fixing their houses of the oppressors, which would have been fun for 18 years, right? And then in the Buddha's life, there was wars. You know, he had two kings who were his. Um, sponsors, his supporters, and both of them got overturned by their sons. There were wars during his lifetime. So not that different from now in a lot of ways. 
They were in the middle of the wars. We're watching them from, from afar. We personally, but other people are in them. And sort of under this realm of loving kindness, I think one thing that's really striking is both of them embraced persons who were social outcasts within the times that they lived. The Buddha constantly spoke against the caste system and really talked about we're all the same, had all these tons of back and forth with Brahmins about in the, in the suttas about kind of these debates. He said, no, the, the, you know, the real thing that makes us is what we do. A higher being is what we do, not how we're born, not the color of our skin, not the caste we're in. Jesus did the same thing. You know, he, he reached out to people who were just at the, the bottom of society. He kept freaking people out when he did that. And, and in particular, they both had great compassion towards courtesans because those women were really outcasts. So it's a whole layers of compassion. They're women, they're outcasts, they're doing this, you know, sexual trade or whatever. There's a whole bunch of reasons why they're outcasts. And in both cases, they opened, connected with them as beings like anybody else and let them express love. In the, in the Bible, it says, a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and be- chokes me up. began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who or what kind of woman this is who was touching him, that she is a sinner. And he did know. And that's why he let that, you know, he, he, he supported her in that way. And then same thing for the, uh, the courtesan. This is now we're in the suttas. The courtesan Amba, Amba Pali, having mounted a magnificent vehicle, went off to see the Lord, the Buddha. She approached on foot and having greeted the Lord, sat down at a respectful distance. She said, she spoke thus to him. Will the Lord consent to a meal with me tomorrow? Inviting the monks is what she means. And the Lord consented by becoming silent. And this happens a couple of times in the suttas. And a lot of times there, there, there'll be a situation where some royalty wants to offer the meal to the Buddha, but this courtesan already came and offered. And the, the royalty said, well, who's she? I'm offering you this meal. And the Buddha said, no, she asked. She's, I agreed. I'm doing that. And the guy would be just all outraged because what was he doing with this lower caste courtesan woman? So there's this real sense of just touching, reaching, connecting with the people of all levels. And that's, you know, that's, that's a high bar for all of us. I mean, I was just in the library and, you know, today working on this and there's, you know, there's a little, in Kirkland, there's a little category of just people off the street that are there. And there's one woman who's got some infection in her foot and she sits there in the front and all day. And I was really trying, you know, I was part of it was like, Ugh. and another part of me is just trying to be loving. And I wasn't, I wasn't a hundred percent, but I was working on it because it is that bar, you know, it is that bar. And then, and then sort of these things all link together. Because both the Buddha and Jesus were relentless and intense about turning people's attention away from the material stuff, from the attractions of life toward the sacred. And both suggested pretty radical shedding of wealth and gold. The, uh, 
in the, in Mark, it says that Jesus says, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then the Buddha says, riches make most people greedy and so are like caravans lurching down the road to perdition. Any possession that increases the sin of selfishness or does nothing to confirm one's wish to renounce what one has is nothing but a drawback in disguise. It's a curious translation, but anyway, you get the idea. You know, that we're just really recognizing that it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it traps you. And that's something that we, you know, we have to think about. We're all middle class kind of people. Um, but how do we, we're rich, you know, I've, been in India several times, and like the mere fact you can show up in India, it's changed a little bit now, but especially years ago, it was like you were crazy rich that you could even be there. Someone say, oh, you're rich. I said, well, I'm not rich. And they say, yeah, you're here. You're rich. Um, simple as that, you know. So how we navigate that is how we express generosity. You know, we got families. We got it's. We sort of got to live. And at the same time, how we express that is real interesting to work on it, to really do it mindfully. Think what we really don't need. You know, think, give, give the other away. And I've learned a lot. As some of you know, I work with there's some monastics, Claremont Monastery here in Seattle. You, you go pretty frequently, Ajahn Nisabo. And, you know, these guys, they got, I mean, they're, they're, they're living very rigorous monastic code. Ajahn Nisabo, 7 a.m., what day is today? Yeah, he'll be down tomorrow morning. He'll be down at Pike Place Market at 7 a.m. with a alms bowl and takes a ferry over from Southworth. And whatever any, anyone puts in his bowl, that's it, what that's what he eats. And he has to take the ferry back at 7:40. And he doesn't accept money. Can't keep food overnight. That's it. And if no one gives him anything, he just doesn't eat. And and it's it's extraordinary. But the getting to know those guys, the freedom they have, it's amazing. It's hard to describe, but there's a way. It's like they, the things that we are worry about not having, or we're trying to keep it. They don't. They just don't worry. It's a sudden blink. He 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 went through a period last last winter where he had a cracked bone in his foot, and to get to the ferry on Southworth is about a about a mile walk. I mean, it's pretty long. And it'd be like the middle of January. It'd be like January twelfth, hissing down rain, thirty four degrees, on crutches, through that mile to get on the ferry to go to Coleman Dock to walk up the Pike Place Market, and you see him coming up on his crutches with the rain coming down, kind of beaming basically. It's like, dude, he said, no, it's okay. It doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's amazing. So we learn something from that. So I think the, 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 the way Jesus and the Buddha talk about it, it's really helpful because we can get all, I get hung up, you know, and having enough and all that. And it's like, no, actually, you can let it go if, if we've cultivated richness inside. Otherwise, then you're, you know, you're on the street and it's a whole different deal. So, uh, yeah, and you think of it, I'll humbly admit that I sometimes read about extremely fast automobiles because I have a motorhead part of me, but it's like, it's so ridiculous. Like, really? $3 million for a car that goes, why? You know, with 16 cylinders, that all that stuff. And, and you start to project into the mind of someone who does that. They're not going to, the mere fact that they're kind of putting energy into making that happen there's a kind of freedom they just can't find because they're cultivating this this identification with this ridiculously 
expensive object, which in fact will rust and fall apart eventually. You know, it will. I mean, it's just a ridiculous, it's just, you know, they'll probably crash it trying to go too fast, but it's, it's, it's illuminating. It almost makes you kind of sad to see someone trying so hard to get this material perfection or, you know, Mr. Bezos was very large boat. You know, it's like, okay, fine, but it's just a very large boat. So I think there's a freedom there that we can find and, and what Jesus and the Buddha show. It helps us get through. There's another quote here from Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth or moth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve God and money. So isn't that cool? So, you know, in a way, a lot of the choices we make about what we buy and don't buy and whether we, you know, do we take that and give to someone else are ethical choices that we need to look at, you know. It's, it's, it's pretty powerful. I mean, it's really, a, it's a bigger thing than just, oh, can I get this? It's broader and it has everything to do with our journey to awakening. And there's really something to work with there. And that's part of why, you know, as you know, the, any Donna offering, I just roll it back out again. And by the way, I'm happy to say for those who haven't been here before that we were, all the Donna that came in from September till the end of November as it worked out, half of it was going to Meta in Action, which is a NGO that supports monastics and women and children in Myanmar. And they've been having a real hard time. Carol, Carol Wilson's a Buddhist teacher is one of the leads on that. And anybody having even just to get into Myanmar with cash because of the, the military junta, but they're going to do it. They, they, they managed to get, they got the visa and they're going to do it. So we sent $900. We sent $900 that came from everybody here and from different off, you know, different teachings and stuff. So it's pretty cool, right? And it's going to make a big difference for people who are in just difficulty situation they can hardly imagine. But so, and then getting near the end here, but in a sense, in terms of like kind of leading into the whole area of kind of what our practice is or how, how we grow. And it's just so huge. I just kind of almost like cherry picked a few things, but I was struck that in a sense, he's pointing to this concept in Dharma, not self, when he suggests that we move away from defending ourselves. And you put a certain frame around it, and what he's saying, he says, this is in a, in a Sermon on the Mount, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Isn't that amazing? You know, it's like, it's a real like, go past the part that I'm going to defend me. It's like, nope, doesn't matter. Be generous. Be generous and let go. It's almost like it's a radical letting go of selfing. He's pointing to put a certain way of looking at it. And this whole question of awakening, you know, the journey we're on, emancipation and the journey of sacredness that I think that I think Jesus was really talking about was that's why I like the monastics. I think that's what he was really trying to get people to do. We could we could say. He said in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. No, it's not. It's somewhere else. But anyway, 
He said, Jesus said, enter through the, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few that take it. Isn't that interesting? The road is hard that leads to life. To not being adhered by all this stuff that's going to disintegrate. Spend all your energy buying a Bugatti and then it's... I always see these photographs. Someone had a Bugatti or a Ferrari and they crack, it has like completely totaled with 14 miles on the <laughs> odometer. I've seen several photos like that. Just took it out, nailed it, and it was gone. This happens multiple times with those kind of cars. <laughs> I still don't to drive them. That is not a Vega, my friend. And, uh, and in the Buddha, in the teachings of the Buddha, he says, just as there are few pleasant parks and lakes, but many dense thickets and inaccessible mountains, so there are few beings who will be reborn among men. More numerous are those who will be reborn in purgatory. Doesn't that sound Christian? <laughs> I mean, there are hell realms in Buddhism. You know, we just don't think about it so much, but there totally are. So he's just saying the same thing. You know, you got to work it. So, you know, the radiance thing. Radiance that the Buddha manifested, radiance that Jesus manifested. That's 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 our birthright, right? That's what we all can be. That's why we practice. That's who we are underneath the layers that get in the way. You know, that quote I bore you with, but nonetheless, I love it. Uh, the mind is luminous, vi- the mind is luminous obscured by visiting defilements. I, I, I share, it's from the, uh, it's from the numerical discourses. And it's so amazing because it ca- to me, it captures who we are. The mind is luminous. It's obscured by visiting defilements, therefore removable. They're not permanent. All the things that keep us, and, it's, and, and the process of awakening, it's not like we achieve something, we just remove the defilements. That's what our practice is, you know? Just remove the defilements and we're good. And it says, Jesus spoke unto them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And from the Dignikaya, it says, When a bodhisattva descends from heaven, there appears in this world an immeasurable splendid light surpassing the glory of the most powerful glow. And whatever dark spaces lie beyond the world's end will be illuminated by this light. So let's just sit for a moment. <clears throat> <clears throat> 